Radio. This is Catholics Read on Cradio.org.au. Hello and welcome to the first edition of Catholics Read. Uh, my name is Luke and I'm joined with Kiara. Hello. And Victoria. Hey. And we're going to be starting out by looking at the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis because we thought this would be a pretty good start for any investigation into books because it's awesome and it's Christian. And And it's C.S. Lewis. Yes, that's correct. Now, for this episode, we're going to be looking at the first part of the book, which will be book one uh, and the preface. Which is a pretty substantial amount, I reckon. Uh, We don't want to do too much because we don't want to bore everyone here if they're not bored already. So, Kiara, do you want to take me through what does C.S. Lewis really look at in the preface before he gets into the bulk of his work? I mean, the preface is probably the best written preface you could ever ask for a book. It literally tells you where the whole idea for the book came from and, you know, a brief suggestion of why he wrote this book. And it actually wasn't initially a book, it was initially a series of radio talks uh, okay. by the BBC back in the 40s, which he then put into a book for some really important reason that I can't quite find. It must have been moment. really important. Yeah, it must have been really, really important. <laughs> and so he wanted to provide a very, very reasonable way to, of thinking about Christianity, of thinking about God, of thinking about the laws of nature but that didn't necessarily come from some overly intellectual, philosophical or scientific standpoint. It's, you know, he really kind of makes it very human because he's not, he's not a philosopher. He's not a scientist. He's a literature professor. And this is what this book is. It's an, it's an oral story of, Mm. you know, why we, but, you know, Christians believe the things they believe. And that's kind of what he sort of outlines in the preface. And he also gives the logical reasoning for the structure of the book too, which is very, very helpful. And it's brilliantly clear. Don't you agree, Victoria? I think um, the way he sets about it is the fact that he sort of covers his back, so to speak, um, in this preface before he gets into it. Because as we understand, he got a lot of letters after the original radio broadcast went out. And um, so he's just, he kind of goes over what he's not aiming to do. And he's not Right at the end, he's not saying that he's trying to put forth an extra, another creed. So not like instead of in opposition to in opposition, like in you know the creed of mere Christianity. He's saying that this is a good uh, gateway, so to speak, and then from there you can make an informed decision as to where you want to go after that. I know Luke really likes the whole idea of the hall. Yeah, actually, that was that was an interesting part. He kind of talks about how he doesn't want to lead people, although he himself is a high church Anglican. He wants to lead people into Christianity in general. Uh, He uses the term, uh, if I can find it, we have real books here. We're not using Kindles, (laughs) as you can hear. So, yeah, he gives this idea of the hall. He wants to lead people into a kind of hall of Christianity, uh, which goes out into separate rooms, which would be the separate denominations. Uh, So, for example, his own high church Anglicanism, Catholicism, uh, Anabaptist, etc., etc., Now, I thought this was quite an interesting notion as a Catholic because I think that in my dealings with Protestants who love C.S. Lewis, and understandably so, they kind of have this mentality of Christianity that the body of Christ, the church, is this kind of set out that you've got all these separate little rooms and they all go within the body of Christ, which (laughs) 
is an okay idea, but the problem is that it kind of negates the idea that there's one true church that Christ himself founded and rather kind of looks at it as though it's simply nations that make up the United Nations or, or states that make up the Commonwealth of Australia or something like yeah. that. Rooms that make up a house. Exactly, yes, mm. and that's the exact analogy that he uses. And, yeah, I was quite intrigued by that because it gave me a little bit of insight into where my Protestant friends come from and where C.S. Lewis is trying to go with this book. I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on that. I mean, C.S. Lewis was, of course very, very close friends with uh, J.R. Tolkien. They were colleagues and very, very good friends. And Tolkien was the one who kind of poked him in, helped poke him into Christianity to begin with. And, um, you know, but Tolkien never could quite get him into the Catholic, get it, quite get him into the Catholic faith. The Catholic room. Yeah, the Catholic room or, you know, the Catholic larger house Mansion. and all the other, I don't know. So um, what I find fascinating about that kind of analogy that he taps into it's almost the problem with it is and I'm sure he'd be very aware of this is that it's one thing to have a hallway with lots of different rooms the problem is the people in all those different rooms think they are the house yeah yeah (laughs) that's and that's a you know that's a real issue because they're not they're you know still in reality just a room and if you go to a different room you'll find another bunch of people who also think they make up the entirety of the house which they don't which is um which is where I think that analogy breaks down. Yeah, a little bit there. Um, but having said that, that's it's a vague analogy that he throws it that he uses there, which I'm sure he's not intending for us to take no, quite so literally. Taking, yeah, I don't <laughs> yeah. think he's really taking like a you know massive ecclesiological extract or argument within that. Um, but it is interesting from a Catholic perspective and our view of the church and our view of the the, the body of Christ. How C.S. Lewis goes at that. Which makes a nice little segue into the start of his book proper, mm-hmm. uh, where he looks into the law of nature. I don't know if anyone has any comments on how, how they, any interesting uh, aspects that they found about that. What, what's it really about? How does he go about it? Well, I really liked the way he started off because I think that most people think once you get into the whole argument of, you know, is there a God? If so, what kind of God is he? Is he a God of any religion that we know of, um, they sort of start with external things. So, um, you know, I suppose observing the universe, Aquinas's five theories, uh, five proofs, sorry. And basically, C.S. Lewis doesn't do that. He starts at the human, you know, the man, the soul. And everyone can relate to that because we are human. So it's not like we're starting off at some ulterior observation of the universe. We're looking at ourselves first and then branching out, which I think is quite unique in terms of C.S. Lewis's style. Mm, mm. And it's also, you also got to think about who the audience he was presenting this to. This was a, originally a broadcast, a radio broadcast show on the BBC, which there was a, you know, and there was a wireless in every home in the ni- by this stage of the 1940s. And so he's talking to normal, ordinary people and mm. you can't be doing highbrow philosophy with everybody. And not that that's, calling everybody stupid but he really kind it's not his approach anyway because he's a storyteller and Mm. so he starts with a you know an observation it's like have you ever seen two people arguing you know Mm. and what are they arguing you know what are they arguing (laughs) about like you know have you ever thought have you ever thought that the reason why people argue is because someone feels slighted and the other person is trying to convince them that they haven't and like 
why does that person even feel slighted yeah. to begin not, with? It's Where's... not as though uh, those two people, it's just those two people. There's an appeal to, to a natural law, mm. a law of nature, if you will. And what I found really fascinating about this is that it approaches, as Victoria said, it approaches it in a different way to what I'm used to, uh, which is kind of like Aquinas' five ways. It's a real long uh, philosophical tract with a number of proofs, a number of uh, foundations that are quite complicated. It is quite hard to describe to the layman on the street. But what I found quite brilliant about this, even though it's not really not traditional but a standard way of approaching God, it's a brilliant way for Christianity because what it does is when we look at the concept of justice and the idea that we don't meet, we know within ourselves that we don't meet this set standard of justice that we all have, we must have some kind of redemption there. We must be redeemed from something. We know that we have a higher standard that we're meant to be set to, but none of us can ever make it. And that's really interesting because Christianity, that really is part of the core of why Christ came. It was to redeem us. And I think it's such a brilliant setup. Because if we look at, say, for example, Aquinas's five ways, you can explain to someone that you can do two years of lectures on it, but they could get to the end of it and be like, well, now what? So what? Why, why do I need to have a relationship with God? Why, why did this Jesus person who you talk about have to come to earth? Why did he get crucified? So what? The, the answer to that is not embedded within Aquinas' five ways or any other usual philosophical approach to God. And no, I'm sure it's in the Summa somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's in the Summa somewhere. But in terms of, like, that's it, the God of the philosophers, uh, whereas what C.S. Lewis is doing is he's really just kind of saying, cutting that out of the way, that's all important, but simply approaching this from the perspective of what's the main thing that everyone, every layman in the street should really know about God? And that is that he's a God of love, he's a God of mercy, and he's a God of justice. And we can see through introspection that fact. Which is the essence of philosophy in itself, mm. which is, you know, looking to, our, looking to ourselves to understand the way, you know, who we are and why we exist. But the other thing you've got to remember, too, is that Christianity itself is fundamentally a story. And no, there were a bunch of men in the 20th century who were very much attuned to that fact. C.S. Lewis was one of them. Tolkien was another. Chesterton was another. Hilaire Belloc was another. You know, there were this this kind of group of men who lived around the you know World War One, World War Two, who were very very attuned to the fact that Christianity is a story. As much as it is philosophy and theology, the first Christian books that were produced were not philosophical proofs of that God exists. It was the story of Jesus. Mm. It was the Gospels. And that's kind of what C.S. Lewis is trying to reclaim, is trying to bring, you know, bring theology and bring philosophy out of the kind of stuffy arches of Cambridge and Oxford and down into the ordinary London street corner. Mm. And he does that in just in such a simple, clear way. It's almost like he's having a conversation with you. Like I, I can, you know, picture his voice. I can picture him sitting across from me having a chat about, you know, what is this, you know, law of human nature? And, you know, you're kind of going, oh, 
Yeah, I suppose that all makes sense now, doesn't it? You know, it's great. I love it. And the funny thing is he kind of plays, it's almost, it's not, sometimes it's like he's having a conversation with you, but other times he, it's like he knows his readers are going to be responding to this, so he fills in the the other side of the conversation. So he'll make his point and he'll be like, blah, 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 blah. Now I know what you might be saying, this, this, and this, but to this I say that. So it's almost (laughs) like even if you have objections, but you can't articulate them in any way, um, he'll make it for you. And yeah. then he'll disprove it. And, I, I found, <laughs> and I, then he'll reply. <laughs> I found that when I was reading as well. Like, I would be reading, say, the first part of it, and I'd be thinking, yeah, but what about, you know, psychopaths or something? Like, what about people who have, quite obviously, deficiencies with morality? And then he goes ahead and answers it. <laughs> and it would be constantly like this. I would constantly try and outflank him in my mind. Don't and try and do would, that. <laughs> putting the shields up and, and I would find that he would have the answer to that. And it was in the exact same... It was almost like he knew. Well, it was. He did. <laughs> he did. He, did. he knew where all... I guess because he became he came from the perspective of, of an atheist at one point in time. And so he's had to work through these questions himself. And so that's why he is able to really articulate the argument and play out the argument in a book. It doesn't have to be a And on the radio too. Mm. Yeah. And on the radio as well. He probably did it in person. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> but this. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, and again, like you can really see the professor in him coming out too at some points. Like he's a very, some of the, the tone he takes is a, is a very gentle professorial tone, not in any way that's condescending per se, but one that's very, that sets out to clearly instruct people and to make sure you understand. And so, you know, you, I think of some of my best teachers I've ever had. And I would count C.S. Lewis among them mm. because that's what, you know, that's the way he is. He's a, he was a teacher as well. That's not to say that he's soft on fallacies, though. Oh, Like, when he finds them, for instance, he goes on about um, sort of like the whole universe combusting out of, like, a spontaneous... Nothing or whatever. And he sort of... By the way, at the time, the Big Bang Theory was very new and novel. And, you know, a priest (laughs) made that one up. Anyway. Um, But anyway... No no need. No need for that. No need. (laughs) Um, And he sort of just beats it into submission. (laughs) And says, maybe this. Or, you know... But he doesn't go soft on things he thinks is wrong. Regardless of what science says later. And, I mean, you've got also... I mean, one of the most interesting things that you've got about this book, too, is the context in which it came out at. The first radio broadcasts were broadcast between 1942 and 1944. And this was when Europe was probably at its lowest of low in its history. Total war was happening every day on the radio. All you'd be hearing was death, destruction, violence, Mm -hmm. insanity. Like for most, for people, for the people of Europe at the time, the world had literally gone mad. Nobody knew what was right or wrong anymore. Nobody knew what was up or down. They were being bombed. They were being, you know, their sons were being conscripted to war. Their women were being conscripted into factories. Like, it was the to kind of wrap your minds around the mindset of World War II London at the time is really quite difficult. But if you try and stand in their shoes and then all of a sudden, in the midst of all this death and destruction and madness, you hear this voice talking about right and wrong, talking about goodness, talking about beauty, talking about truth, and talking about God. Mm. And it's kind of, it seems to be the most absurd thing, but it was actually the, probably one of the most profound, and this was an incredibly popular show, what he did, which is why he put it into a book. That, that's like, wow. 
you know, could you imagine, you know, could you imagine just having that one, you know, it would almost be like a lone voice crying for reason and sanity in a time where everybody was just mad in a, in a time where society was honestly thinking it was descending into madness. Mm. And as it was revealed later on, it, it had descended into madness. Like you had, you know, as, as you know, facts about the Holocaust came out and all this, all the atrocities of the war, just, you know, this became kind of a clarion call of, you know, going back to what Western civilization almost, you, you know, almost just used to stand for. Mm. And he does kind of attack a little bit the idea of progress too, which is a very, very big deal in the early 20th century, this whole idea that Western civilization was progressing the onto greatness, progress, the branch yeah. of progress. And C.S. Lewis goes, no, because let's face it, we have this human, we have this law of human nature which sets a standard for how we should behave. But we all break it. Um, we all find some excuse for why we do it. And, you know, there's no, there's, no such th- there's no such thing as this onward march of progress because we are no better than what our forefathers were mm. in terms of our conforming to this objective standard of mm. morality. And so he's like, boom, there you go. Progress myth. <laughs> Well, he he doesn't discount progress. He's no, like, he doesn't. He, he brings a new element to it to it because he says progress isn't always moving away from what we've always had. Sometimes progress, the best kind of progress, which is moving towards the good always, can be to step backwards to go back. So he talks about a man that's on a on a road, and there are two men on a road, and one keeps going further and further away from where he wants to go, and one realizes he's going the wrong way. And turns back, and he's the more progressive. Mm-hmm. Sort of, sort of like a maths problem. Like you go, you make a mistake, but you keep going further and further away. But the more progressive is the one that. And I think, I think that is really pertinent to today's society. It's extreme. It was extremely pertinent to the society back then, and it's even more so today. <laughs> because we, <laughs> because I guess we have, we kind of have this progressive mindset uh, that. You know that we are better than our than our than our forebearers um, by virtue of the fact that we are here today and they were there before, and so therefore we must be better. But especially within politics, I find um, it kind of progress kind of seems to be this this dangling carrot in front of in front of ourselves that we're forever chasing. We we, we reach one point and then we have to keep going. And I think a really good example of this I found. Is, is, for example, in the United Kingdom, uh, looking at the debates there re- in reference to same-sex marriage. Now, I know that this is a very controversial issue, but an example of this uh, that we see there is that in the debates concerning uh, civil unions uh, between members of the same sex back in the early 2000s, one of the parliamentarians there said that, kind of gave a guarantee of sorts that this will not lead to a push for marriage. This would not lead to a push for marriage. Now, recently, of course, as we've seen in Britain, that has led to a push uh, for for same-sex marriage, as it's described. And one of the parliamentarians kind of called this same guy out on it and said, look, you said back in the early 2000s that the civil unions law would not lead to a push for marriage. And the only reply that he gave was, well, we're living in different times now. Which which kind of exactly is that dangling carrot? It's kind of like, well, we've achieved that. Now we have to go further. They perceive it as their end goal. And then once they reach it, we have to keep going further and further. And I think that what Victoria was saying before, that kind of fork in the road, where we keep going down that fork in the road until it gets, it gets darker and gloomier and we're going deeper and deeper into the forest. 
And we think, no, march onward, march onward, even though it's not necessarily the right direction. The progressive thing might be to turn back. Now, I'm not saying that I know the end result or the, the ideal result of a situation concerning two people of the same sex who are in a relationship. That's not the point here. The point here is that today we do have this idea that once we've started going down a certain road, the logical end is to just keep going down that road. Till you whether find the end. Exactly. Whether it is abortion, whether it is same-sex marriage, whether it's... Name uh, any other, insert any other controversial social innovation you exactly, want Exactly. Any issue like that, whether it's religious freedom, whether it's access to contraception, whether it's anything like that, we kind of see, well, no... The legal precedent that we set before was this. Therefore, we have to take it further. And there's no real end given there. But the brilliant thing about C.S. Lewis and the thing that he points out is that there is actually an end. There is an end. And it's in the moral good. It's in what is truly good. That is the end. That is our goal. Now, without the Lord's grace, we will never reach that. And quite frankly, we'll probably never reach it in this life. That's why Christ came, because only he can reach that. But the fact of the matter is, is that there is that ideal static end that we work towards that exists whether we like it or not. It's not something, it's not uh, a hole that continue, that's endless, that continues. Like in Super Mario 64, if you don't have all the stars and you're going to verse Bowser and you have to go up that little staircase. Anyway, <laughs> anyone right, who knows about that would know what I'm talking about. Nintendo references aside... Um... <laughs> But, it, you know, again, like, this is a particular, per, particularly salient point at the time, especially with, you know, C.S. Lewis is very attuned to this sense of this the, the rise of the age of the secular. You had two very secular ideologies battling it out in Europe at the time. One was fascist ideology and the other was communist ideology. As far as C.S. Lewis was concerned, both of them were bad news for various reasons. And he wasn't alone in saying this. And... But he, you know, and he, that's what, that's, again, that's why he was so adamant on the fact that progress does not necessarily equal marching down the same road to achieve, of any train of thought to achieve its logical conclusion, because it might not be a good conclusion. Logic is a, you know, logic itself is amoral. You can, you can logically argue for almost anything, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. Mm. They're two different, you know, logic and morality are two different things. And so mm. that's why he was so adamant about it. And... That comes through strongly, but not to the point where you're like going, okay, next point. Um, he keeps you, he keeps you running hard, like all throughout <laughs> this. You're just going, oh yeah, this is great. And my favorite bit is kind of the end of it, like what lies behind the law. This is where he starts kind of gently leading you to the, even considering the point that there's a god. Yeah. So he's kind of established this idea. Okay, everyone knows that there's a standard that we ought to live up to, whether they be a native in the back of some unknown country in the middle of... Nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. Everyone knows that there's this standard. And most cultures, and he points this out, have had similar standards despite their wildly different cultures and civilizations. And so what he really leads to is, okay, what's behind this? You know, we found that there's this objective thing there. What's behind this? We can't simply reduce it to genetics. We can't simply reduce it to human instinct because he deals with those things. Mm -hmm. The whole herd instinct thing, yeah, mm -hmm. debunks that. It's pretty awesome. What is it? And his conclusion is that there must be some kind of intelligence that is outside space and time. And you know, and at the end of it, it's plausible. You know, this is what this is what Christians kind of at the beginning mean by God. But then he kind of sets it up saying. 
that, you know, we're not even talking about a personal God or a God who became man to say, you know, to redeem us. We're just, this is like... Yeah, this we're, is we're in very basic... We're ground zero. Level. We're at objective morality, you know, objective he, truth. He's, you know, he's taken the assumption that you have not had any exposure to any kind of, you know, religious or religious thinking, which would have been, you know, which would have been unusual at the time, but was not impossible. And so this is like, this first book is like really kind of baby, baby, baby steps. And then he goes, so maybe we could consider that there is a God. And later I will show you how this God is also personal and all these other wonderful things. And um, which we'll get into next time, I suppose. Yes, mm, which is what we will two. have to get into. Okay, so thank you very much for joining me, Kiara. It was a pleasure. Victoria. No worries. And yes, we will be back in two weeks' time to discuss the next section, which is... Book two, What Christians Believe. We're finally getting into the Christianity part of New <laughs> Christianity. Yes. So I hope you enjoyed listening. Please send us your feedback uh, if you think that that we've rambled too much or that Luke is too loud because <laughs> I am. Or that Kiara is too loud. <laughs> or that you'd like I us to address I turned your mic something. down a little bit. Or if you have any questions that you'd like us to address next time. Yes, and you can send those into creativelimited at gmail.com. That's my email address, so that'll pop up on my computer. So... I can address those next time if you if you would like us to. So thank you once again for listening and we hope that you have a good day. Bye. That was an episode of Catholics Read from cradio.org.au.